Hi, it's Elisa. Welcome back to the podcast. There's more to our story. And the second half of my conversation with the incredibly talented Marianne Alda. I hope you're enjoying the conversation as much as I did. We're going to pick up right where we left off and find out the fate of D.D. Bannister. Welcome back. Okay, I am thrilled that we are able to make this a two-part episode because the conversation we're having is something that is incredibly important for people to understand. And as a first episode of what I'm talking about and why I wanted to do this podcast, you represent so many pieces of what there's more to our story means. And the first part of your journey is exactly the other part of the story. Um, so I'm going to pick up where we were. We're still talking about Didi and the importance of what that meant and what it was telling to the, the, one of the things that I talk about, and I know that you are aware of this, the storytelling that we see and we're exposed to has a lot of influence on our culture and our society and mass media platforms film television have enormous reach and influence in ways that we sometimes don't always recognize so picking up on the importance of Didi and though and that 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 shift into daytime television it started to have an influence and and you and your example of the woman that you met in the in the cafe it you it's hard for people to understand what it means until you have an interaction like that and so take going from Didi and and obviously it sounds like Didi's contract when she was carted off. I don't know the story. Did she <laughs> did she just go to the the hospital and we never see her again? What happened to poor Didi? Well, the interesting thing is that uh, and this I found out. You know, um, Whitney Burnett was a new casting director on the show. And so I was the very first recurring character that she cast. And then the fact that I became a contract player was, was a coup for her uh, because she brought me in, not from an agent, but out of her own instincts. I mean, she literally went into her files and said, ah, hmm, let's bring her in. So I was, a, I was one of her favorites. <laughs> um, <laughs> And so I, she came over to this set one day when uh, Dee Dee was now in the mental institution and, and I had a lot of scenes there. <clears throat> and she, she said to me sort of conspiratorially, you have a Q score. I had no idea what that meant. And I said, what does that mean? She said, oh, honey, she said, First of all, there are people who have been on this show for 10 years who don't have a Q score. That's a TV Q score. That means that the character is resonating with the audience and uh, they couldn't get rid of me. I, 
my contract was not renewed. So I went on to day player status, but my character continued on the show to the very last episode because the audience had so invested in the character of Dee Dee mm. that they couldn't get rid of her and they didn't want to piss off the audience. <clears throat> so, uh, yeah, so I state now, if anyone is a, a young actor or older actor, anybody, an actor out there, what I did when I first got that script, I remember it was kind of written that, you know, Dee Dee goes crazy and, you know, she, they're, they're taking her off to the mental institution. That may have been what the writer had in mind, but the way I played the character with a lot of subtext was that I was Joan of Arc. I recognized that I was very sensitive to the subliminal messaging. I knew something was wrong. I tried to get people to listen to me. I was going to save the town of Monticello. That's how I played the character. And uh, so it wasn't just like, oh, I'm going crazy. I'm losing my mind. It was like, listen to me, please, 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 someone listen. You're not listening. Whole different kind of energy. And that's what permeated, you know, when people say, what's the difference between good acting and good acting and bad acting? I mean, it's just the lines. Mm -mm. It's the interpretation that the character puts on them, on them. And so I played that character with such passion and such, um, such, uh, such, such passion and, and, and such a sense of honor and dignity and th that the audience responded to that. Yeah. And yeah. that, that saved Didi, that saved my job, that also made the character very popular. So, and in fact, it was funny because the show, again, it was the seventies and they were, they were very budget conscious on that show. And sometimes it would go a little over, sometimes it would go a little under, but they would edit the show right there as opposed to doing it in post. They did as much right then and there as they possibly could. <clears throat> so my scene, when they were taking me off, to the mental institution. I'm lying on the gurney. I'm I'm strapped around, and the director is in front of the by the, on the side of the camera, going rolling his hand like going keep going keep going keep going because we were ten seconds under. Oh, so geez. I'm lying there on the gurney, and I'm I hear him going. I had no lines, no no dialogue. I mean, I finished saying everything I was supposed to say. And I just started, sat there and I laid there and I went, mama, 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 And I just, for 10 seconds. And then, you know, we had a thing because uh, everybody knew that we were trying to do things um, efficiently on the show. So if somebody, if an actor went up on a line or something like that, and, and another actor would come in and save the line so they could keep going and not have to go back and do a reshoot. We would all, you know, applaud, like, save the day. So when I finished that, it's like everybody crowds around. I'm still strapped on oh, this geez. gurney. I can't move. <laughs> and everybody's coming around going, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm getting this big. 
round of applause. Oh my God. And, um, and that year, the way we would submit for the uh, Daytime Emmy Awards was that our show would select who they were going to submit. And that year, m my cast members uh, submitted me for the oh. for Daytime Emmy. <laughs> Amazing. Yeah. So, so let's move a little bit further. We're going into your career. And as I mentioned in the intro, you, you went on and had a lot of um, success in sort of primetime television. Let's talk a little bit about when you, when you shifted from daytime into primetime. And this would have been the later 80s and this 90s, is 85. right? This is 1980. The show Edge of Night was canceled in 1985. Okay. And... So that meant all What's of next? us were out of a job. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So we formed a little community, Edge of Night community in LA. A lot of us moved to LA. Several of us moved to LA and started our careers there. I, <clears throat> my agent introduced me to an agent in LA. So I automatically had representation and they were, and so I was going out and audition. Um, this is something I found interesting for women at the time in 1985. I was auditioning. I had been there. I had been auditioning like for six months. I had not booked a thing. I went in to have a conversation with my agent at the time to kind of figure out, you know, well, what was the, what was the deal? Why I wasn't booking. And I said to him, you know, Mark, I, I come in, you know, with my New York, you know, swag and, First thing I do is I let them know, you don't have to worry with me. I got it. I got you covered. I know. And he said, well, Marianne, that's the problem. I said, what do you mean? He said, you're beautiful. You can't be smart too. Men are intimidated by that. I went, you have got to be kidding. No, he did and not he, say that. Yes, he did. I, and you know what? He was right. Because the very next audition... And it was for what's happening now. With my very next audition, I went in and I was, oh, I hate to admit it. I was stupid girly. I just went in and I said, I, just, I said, now, is there anything else you'd like to see? Because, um, and then the director gave me some direction. I said, oh, okay, I can do it. And they hired me. Oh, I mean, geez. they hired me because I became more girly and less threatening and like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I, uh, what can I say? And it was a different town. You're in a it was, it's a different it, town, too. Yeah, different culture. Was, yeah, a little different. But in, I was from New York, mm -hmm. and I guess I was too New York-y for L.A. Could, yeah, very good. Yeah, it could have yeah. been. So what was the order in which did for uh, did designing women come before first and ten or first? How did how did uh, what was the order in all of? The next oh, this, this second, uh, I forget. There's a couple of things. I think I did the last precinct with Ernie Hudson and that was supposed to be recurring, but the show was canceled, I think after three episodes. Um, and first and 10 was before designing women. Okay. Um, I remember that the call came in and the call came in in the morning and they wanted me there like by one o'clock or something and I, the, the same day. And I thought, so really? I was a little, okay, so I'm getting myself ready. I go to the audition 
I had the first uh, pre-audition with Robbie Reed, who was the assistant, who knew me from Edge of Night. She called me and Robbie went on to do like all of Spike Lee's movies. So she called me in and she read me and then she said, okay, well, I'm going to, she walked me over across the hall to the head casting director and I, then I auditioned for her. And she said, great, can you stay and, and wait? I waited there while all these actresses went in through this process, coming in and then waiting, coming in and waiting until finally there were, I think, three of us left in contention for this role. By now it's around four o'clock. I had gotten the audition at 10. I hadn't eaten. I was cranky. <laughs> so I'm thinking, what is this about? You know, so <clears throat> I remember I went in to the audition and there's the producers and the director and the director had a bit of a cough. He was coughing. And the casting director said, oh, can I get you some water? Can I get you, do you have any, he's like, I'm a little cold and get you an aspirin. He said, no, 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 I, that's okay. I, I like to suffer. Smart ass me said, huh, you really want to suffer, become an actor. The room went dead quiet. The casting director shot a look at me like, what did you just say? Wow. The director, suddenly burst into tea and to laughter. He says, that's funny, that's funny. And they hired me. I think it's because I was, I don't know. I see. You were I you. I was you. That's yeah, you were, you were authentic. Marianne, <laughs> they, this is it. So, because I left there thinking they will never hire me. And I remember my agent called me and said, I said, what? What? Really? So, yeah, they did. And I ended up. Uh, and it was three seasons. seasons. Yep. HBO, right? HBO. HBO. And uh, the house, how they shot the, um, the episodes, they shot everything out of sequence. Because all of our episodes, the episodes, the seasons were like 13 episodes. So in each season, we would shoot out of context, all of our scenes for all of the seasons. And then they would just edit okay. them into whatever episode they, there were. And our house was actually um, Robert Kardashian's house. So at some point in time, I do remember the little kardashian kids you know they were little bitty kids um running around the house you know like late in the evening or something like that and and i remember when one day we went our tape schedule it was well after midnight we had done <clears throat> covered scenes we had done oj's close-ups and then it was time to do my close-ups now i'm used to doing my close-ups talking to the to the hand of you know the first ad that's mm -hmm. next to the camera oj was wrapped but he stood there next to the camera and he fed me my lines for my close-ups wow so you know there's a little bit of good in the bad people there's a little bit of bad in the good people we're not all one thing 
Yeah, that's that's and then and okay, so then if you got the recurring, now you're into a it, and it was a dramedy, right? It wasn't a typical sitcom. First and Ten was in a sitcom type of in front of a, a totally different um, format than sitcoms, which are in front of an audience. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of the funny parts were had to do with the football players and and locker room scenes and the antics of the football players. Mine was really much the drama part because uh, our son was got picked up for shoplifting. Um, uh, he was having an affair with his assistant. I it was just a lot of you know I was going through the the sturm and drag of a marriage that was falling apart and it fell apart for three seasons okay <laughs> and, watched the and then, demise and of then marriage. career shifts you get on to designing women mm-hmm. and recurring on that sitcom front of an audience i'm assuming it was filmed in front of an audience well that i don't remember now honestly the, the uh the casting director for designing women I think had also been the casting director on what's happening now. Okay. But we had a relationship. She, she had hired me before for something and she brought me in and I, I read for the, uh, I read for the role. Of, and I remember this was one of the episodes that, that Linda Bloodworth Thomason did not write. I remember Pam Norris wrote this episode. And again, it was a lot of dialogue. It was like 15 pages of dialogue for a half hour show. That's a lot of dialogue. Oh, yeah. Um, And so I came in, I did it. They liked me, they hired me. And Meshach Taylor, I cannot speak kindly enough about Meshach. He was just delightful to work with. he was he was just lovely he he was the cruise director on the love boat you know he showed me the ropes and everything we went to lunch together he was very welcoming and very sweet and his wife bianca ferguson had also been on a soap opera she had been on general hospital um and so uh it, it was lovely you know working with him and it's funny because i also did a movie called class act mm-hmm. where we played rapper kids parents and um I ran into Bianca, his wife, at, a, at an audition for something else. And she said, you know, you're in bed with my husband more than I am. Okay, she <laughs> meant on TV. On Designing Women, yes. On, right, so we, we laughed about that. But um, <clears throat> anyway, yeah, that was, that was, uh, that was, it was interesting because that episode is on constant rerun someplace all the time. And for anyone, the next time you happen to be watching this episode, you will see that the character of Lita Ford, when she comes in and she tries to, to stall them from going over to the house where Anthony is working on this kitchen. Uh, when I come in and I turn around and I face them, they're standing there looking at me. Well, the first time I did this scene, I come in and they're standing there looking at me like, oh, God, I hope she can get all the lines out. Lord Jesus, let them just get there. Because that's what happens often with guest cast. You know, the, the, the regular cast is a little concerned about, yeah, you know, let's you, you're the get... new person. You're the new yep. kid on the block. They don't know what you're, and it's a lot of dialogue. A lot let's of dialogue. hope you can do it. 
And so I did it and I kept doing it. And um, Dixie Carter, who at one time had been on the edge of night, came up to me and she said in her very sweet Southern voice, you know, we've been doing this such a long time that sometimes we are just into ourselves and we forget our manners. I just want you to know that you you are doing a lovely job. And that was really sweet of her. Oh, wow. You know, wow. so she did that and she came over and she, you know, gave me a little add a girl. It's like, <clears throat> and um, Pam Norris, the first day of a blocking, she came up to me. She was the one who had written that episode. She said, thank you. She thanked me for doing it so full out. She said, because now I know where the problems are in the script. Yeah, well, and she they don't know it until a, a human brings yeah. it to life, right? Yeah, she made some changes. And I remember her saying to me, she said, oh, she said, you know, uh, after this episode, we probably won't be able to get you back. Huh. Um, that's because at the time, a standout guest character would often get picked up to go on to, to maybe be included as a series regular in another show. Okay. But this was still the early 90s, and that did not happen with any great consistency with Black actors. It was mm. kind of like, my career was like, oh, we like her, but what do we do with her? You know, sure. where would we put her? <clears throat> so uh, that didn't happen. But, uh, and I also remember that the night of the shoot, uh, um, Linda Bloodworth, wanted to make some changes too. So after we let the audience go, she came back and she did a couple of rewrites and we just did it and, you know, nailed it and, you know, went on. And, and uh, I think working in guest cast really, you really build your chops when you, sure. when you're doing guest cast, because that is the most difficult thing to do, I think. And, and the small roles, the under five roles to try to not do too much. Um, I think those those are hard too. But being a regular, when you get a chance to build a character and you have an investment that you can keep building and building and building, it's it's a lot easier. So that's what I'm going for, folks. Let's let's get me another TV series. Well, you did. So talk about royal family. I mean, and 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 I just wanted to ask you because I'm going to. There's a reason for it. When you get um, when you had the royal family, how old were you at that point? At that point, I was 43. Okay. I was, 40, I was 43. So you're in your 40, early guess, 40s, and yep. you are now in a new uh, primetime sitcom, Della Reese, Red Fox. It's a, this is a big show. This is a big deal. Yeah. And and a four-year-old, Naya Rivera, at the time, hmm. she was four years old. <clears throat> And uh, yeah, I did that show, Funny Red Fox Story. Uh, I had auditioned for this character. I remember at the time, this was before fax machines, you would have to drive to the studio, get your sides, and then be in track. I got the call for the audition the next day at five o'clock. And I thought, I'm not driving in this traffic. It was raining. 
I lived in Woodland Hills. I'm not going to spend two hours each way in traffic. I, I'll go early tomorrow I'll, and, and just look at the scene. So I go early the next day. I mean, I didn't, I wasn't thinking that much of it. I got the script and I go, oh, actually, I could do this. And there was a crying scene in there <clears throat> that she's going, she's, she's, she's telling her parents that she's got a divorce. She's getting a divorce and she's crying through. She says, <laughs> And um, uh, I have early in my career, I was likened to Mary Tyler Moore um, mm -hmm. a lot. So I did my best, very <laughs> And they just, the casting director thought that was hilarious. And they kept, you know, they kept, I kept again getting passed along, passed along, passed along till finally it was time for the screen test. It was between me and another actress who shall remain nameless. And she was kind of trying to do a number on my head during this process, like, oh yes, I have an audition. You know, they're seeing I'm on hold for some other thing. And she was trying to undermine me. And I remember we were in the basement at CBS Studios. They have this big room that's like a theater. It's very dark. You walk in, you can't see anybody. There must have been a bunch of people in the room. I walk in. <clears throat> And I do my little, oh, I do the whole scene. And they're like laughing hysterically. I'm going to the door and they're saying, do that again, do that again. I go, and they're just laughing hysterically. I open up the door and there is the next other actress who has to come in behind my, all this love and laughter that is coming my way. And she has to walk in behind that. She looked like a deer in headlights. And I thought, uh-huh, God don't like ugly. Mm. Um, and Eddie's, um, Eddie Murphy, who was the executive producer on that show, his uncle, he was called, I think it was Uncle Lou, who was always with him. He was, he was like the leader of the entourage. He was like his, his bodyguard, front man kind of guy. I think it was Uncle Lou. Uncle Lou came from out of the back of the studio, who came up to me before I left and he said, you got it. Now, I don't know, Uncle Lou, I'm going like, I'm gonna take his word for it. I'm thinking CBS has something to say about it. But he said, you got it, kid. And uh, it, a week later, I did. Wow. So this is, this is a big show. I mean, this is primetime sitcom. Two huge stars that were already established. Red Fox. I mean, it's Red Fox. He's already had a successful sitcom. And uh, how long did it run? Because I know part of, he died is really what the tragedy behind the show was. He died on that show. I think it was episode number eight. Hmm. I think it was episode the eighth episode. So the first season, right? It was he. Yeah, the he first season. Suddenly we did died. Yeah, we did fifteen episodes. We continued on with the show. We had a memorial episode, and then where we honored the character's death, and then um, Jack A was brought on. Initially, I think she was going to play Della's daughter, but. They instead made her, I mean, Della's sister, and said they made her Della's daughter and made her, and she was my sister. Okay. And so we continued on with the rest of, with 15 more episodes, with, with the remaining seven episodes 
for a full 15. And then we waited to hear if we were going to get picked up. And the show that they wanted was the show with Red Fox. Of course. Yeah. They they just dropped it. Although if that show were on today with the numbers that we were pulling, it would have been huge because the audiences today are much more splintered. Um, You're not pulling 10 million. Interesting. Yeah. It was different. It was a totally different time. It was was very, very different. So going to, okay, we're in, you're in your forties now and, mm-hmm. and hey. as you talk, so I, I watched your TEDx talk, which if I highly recommend every, and I, and I'll, I'll include a link to it um, um, with the show notes. You talk about, you know, you've had a, a, a career, a pretty dang successful career. You've been a, a, on a, a soap opera. You were on a series with O.J. Simpson on HBO, recurring on Designing Women. You're on a, a primetime sitcom. And s- things stopped. Yeah, let's see. When uh, When Royal Family went off the air, I was... 44. Mm. Um, I went on, <clears throat> I did some guest spots on right. different shows. And then I did for a year and a half, I had a recurring role on Sunset Beach. Oh, that's right. The, that's right. I totally forgot. So far, yes. yes. As the tragically disfigured Lena Hart, yes. um, which required two and a half hours of application of a prosthetic makeup and then another hour almost to get it off. Uh, my, that was, that was tragic, but, um, yeah, so I did that. And then, and then there were long periods where months would go by when I didn't get an audition at all. And I had a conversation with my agent at the time. And he said, he suggested that I gain 50 pounds so I could do more character work. And I said, well, I think that's pretty ridiculous. Um, And then there was a period in my early 50s, an 18-month period, where my father died, my mother was diagnosed with cancer, my now ex-husband decided that he didn't want to be married anymore. And for the first time in 25 years, I did not make enough as an actress to cover my Screen Actors Guild health insurance. So everything that could possibly happen wow, uh, happened in a very short period of time. Um, <clears throat> so I got divorced, uh, went back to Chicago for nine months while I went through... Um, chemotherapy with my mom. Mm. Uh, that's the thing about actors. It's, it's just my sister and me. But when you don't have a real job, <laughs> when you have flexibility, then it's like, well, can you come home and do this for, you know, for mom? And my my mother lived with my sister at the time. So I like, yeah, it's my turn. Let me be responsible. So I, I went through my mom's chemotherapy. I was thinking about perhaps relocating to Chicago. And my son... Uh, I asked for his assistance and just kind of like visiting properties with me. I was thinking about buying a condo in downtown Chicago. 
we looked at a bunch of different places and my son, bless his heart, he said to me, you know, mom, there's only two places for a star in the sky and in Hollywood. And I think you need to go back to LA. I went, so as my son's encouragement, I came back to Los Angeles. And as a matter of fact, for my birthday that year, he bought me a star, you know, in the, and he gave me a little thing that says that, you know, this star is named after you. Oh. Um, so yes. I have a star, star named after me. So I, I came back to LA. I thought, well, what am I going to do? And I think actors have a natural curiosity about human behavior and motivation. And I had always been interested in hypnosis. Now, I myself at various times in my life had been in uh, talk therapy, regular traditional talk therapy. And I had friends, one particular friend who had been in talk therapy with the same therapist for 15 years. And I didn't see any change in her behavior. And I thought, uh, I don't know about that. I think sometimes therapy, if you talk about your problems, you can actually anchor them in and then they become really embedded in, in your DNA. You become your story. So uh, the Hypnosis Motivation Institute in Tarzana, California, I went to a free workshop and I thought, oh, I like this. And I became, I decided that I would enroll to become a hypnotherapist. And my friend, who was a mutual friend of ours at the time, Karen Grayson, the late, great Karen Grayson. Yes. Said to me, Marianne, why are you, I can understand why you would want to do therapy. Why are you going to be a hypnotherapist? And I said, well, if I'm going to pay the money, at least I'll come out with a certificate. I'm going to go to therapy anyway. Yeah. And this way I'll be able to practice if I, if I want to. And I'm able to be able to make a living. And so it's a one-year training program, the last six months of which you see clients under the uh, supervision of another uh, hypnotherapist. And most of my clients were women in their 40s, early 50s, and all of them had the same malady. The particulars might be different, but the result was still the same. They were all suffering from midlife depression. And I realized that my job was not to hypnotize them. It was to de-hypnotize them from the trance we are all in, women and men, that women lose value and social and sexual currency as we got older. And oh, so yeah. these women were depressed <clears throat> because... They know, they knew who they were. They know that they weren't that anymore, but they couldn't imagine what their future was going to be like where they had any value. Well, this, this is really interesting because this is the, the, the reason I wanted to do the podcast because you and I are very much in alignment in the philosophy about this. We, there is a message or a subliminal and and not not even subliminal a very clear message that is told to women that that we do lose i mean god forbid you age i mean it is it is 
I mean, we have an we have an entire beauty industry telling us not to age, don't age, anti-aging. And I'm like, what is that even? First of all, what does that even mean? We good luck with that. You're gonna age. But for women, it's it's so ingrained. And one of the reasons it frustrates me to no end that women get aged out in film and television is because it gets reinforced and this sense of, well, you have no value, so we don't want to tell those stories because those stories are not of any value. That is, and I don't know the chicken and the egg part of here. It could be the writer's point of view. It could be they think it has to be about youth. I don't know where it all comes from, but there is a, and you talk about this in your TEDx talk, um, the sense, and I was reading the same thing, the the sense that women after they get in their 50s feel invisible. And what I realize is, well, if you look at media, we sort of became invisible, which of course makes women think you should go be quiet over in the corner. At least that's, to me, I think there's a connection on when you don't have representation or you don't see yourself in mass media, the sense of invisibility starts to sublimity go in. And and we became and with I mean there were exceptions to the rule. There are but there but they are exceptions to the rule. The other part that I kind of want to talk about is the connection on the influence it has on women in our society and how we struggle with the aging because there's no examples of just normal women as they age doing normal life things. You didn't just fall off the face of the earth when you hit 50. Your story continued quite actively. And your story just as a human being would be a fascinating character. But if we were told, if Hollywood was going to tell you a story, it would end at 40. But you you know more than anybody because you've navigated all of these roles as a human being. When art forms, media platforms don't give diverse stories to an expanded, expand that storytelling, how the impact it has on society and culture and how people see themselves. And it goes back to what you learned from Dee Dee. But now you're a woman of a certain age and you're experiencing it and you've been you've been screaming about this. I happen to know personally, this has been your passion for 20 years. Oh, yeah, I was I was it started when I was 53 and I'm 73 now. So yeah, 20, 20 years for sure. Um, because when I, when I was giving the positive suggestions to my clients as a hypnotherapist, they took root in my own subconscious mind. So I had to, that obligated me to walk my talk. There's mm. anything you know about me and we've been friends for a long time because of so I'm sure you I do. know I was doing the math the other day and I'm like, we're coming <laughs> About up 30 on years. 20, 30 years. Yeah. yeah. And um, I cannot be inauthentic. So I could not possibly tell these women, you can be all that you can be if I'm not doing that for myself. So I reclaimed my acting career and started writing. My very first mm -hmm. solo show was at the 
Hypnosis Motivation Institute Auditorium. And it was called Snap Out of It. And you've only been hypnotized into believing you're over the hill. And so many of the women in the audience came up to me and said, oh, they told me, my audience tells me that the work that I'm doing is important because yeah. they are seeing themselves reflected in the stories that I'm telling in a way that they're not seeing in film and television. So I continued on. Um, I did sketch comedy with a group called Three Black Chicks uh, with Lola Love and Iona Morris. Iona and I continued on. I did a show called Moist. Um, the stories changed, but the through line remained the same. It was about or women's empowerment and the fact that we uh, we have stories to tell, we have a life to live, and that older women are vital, vibrant, and viable. Absolutely. And my current solo show is called Get Nola's is a Bitch, but I'm going to wrestle that bitch to the ground. It broke a 30-year <laughs> box office record at the National <laughs> Black Theater Festival. Um, and the women, the, my audience comes up to me and they tell me, they identify with the character. I've had women say, were you in my kitchen? Were you a fly on the wall? How did you know my story? Because the stories that I tell about being a woman, they're particular to me, but they're universal. They're universal. Uh, yeah. They're, yeah. You know, they're universal. And so um, I, I feel that I, I, I am doing, I look at my acting career is really my ministry. It's, it, it, my, my acting is not about me as the look at me, look at me, look at me about being a performer. Oh, there go the dogs again. Okay. So picking up where we left off. Um, one of the things that I really want out of this podcast is not just to say, come on, Hollywood, you're screwing up. It's to inspire broader storytelling because it's and, 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 and something I happen to know because of our relationship was a, a, a film that you just recently worked on. You had the opportunity to give feedback to these young filmmakers. This is a team of young filmmakers and they were open to hearing about your take on the older character and, and what that might, how they might interact or say. And, and, the, and what I think is there's, first of all, there's a huge audience out there that they're missing and you talk a little bit about this in your TEDx talk. I mean, hello, Population-wise, people over fifty make up a pretty significant, pretty significant portion of the population. I mean, I checked some numbers recently, and I think about a third of the population of the United States is over fifty. So, hello, if it's about business, you got it. You're an untapped audience here that will be watching. You know, more diverse storytelling, more complex characters as they age. And I would love to inspire better, not just because there's a pool of talent that is just looking for, you know, that they, they can pull from from work, like my dear friend Mary Analda, but the, 
that these young filmmakers don't know what they don't know. And they can fall onto stereotypes, which is one of the um, things that we've seen is even when there are characters, and especially when it comes to women, they fall into some stereotypes, some tropes that they're the butt of the joke, they're, you know, not so bright, they're feeble. They're, I mean, that's not always the case. We're seeing changes in that now slowly. But there's an, there, it matters if you don't provide more authentic storytelling that has more positive, um, you know, influence because it gives negative stereotypes and it can Im impact again how how people, men and women, but a lot of women feel about themselves because we're not being represented as vibrant and sexy, which is the reality. Um, but you found you did find some encouraging experience with these young filmmakers that um, would be so it's so exciting for me to hear. Well, um, I uh, a friend of mine, Laura Summer, invited me last year, last February to uh, she said, um, there's this new app called Clubhouse and I really think you should be on here. So I said, well. Let me take a look. I had no idea what it was. And I became fascinated. It's an audio app that I'd liken to a cross between NPR and a party line. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of different conversations that are going on. People, it, they're always moderated, but people can come up from the audience. They can be brought up by the moderators and they can interact. And it's, it's fascinating conversations. Um, and I tend to gravitate towards two topics of conversation, Hollywood and the entertainment industry and uh, older women, women over, over the age of 50. And I go back and forth between these two groups and I feel that I am an advocate for the women over 50 whenever I go into the, uh, the entertainment industry rooms. I always come in there with the same, with you know, with the same spiel. I introduce myself and I recite some statistics from my TED talk that women over the age of 50 own 70% of the income in this country. And when you do not include a layered, subtle, nuanced uh, female character in your scripts, you're leaving money on the table. Yeah. Well, um, some of these young people in Clubhouse, when you're having a conversation with somebody, you can always you can go to their page and and see who they are. They discovered who I am, what I how I participated in this industry, and a couple of them you know, have acknowledged my contribution. And one young woman even said in one of the rooms, she said, before we close out the room, I want to acknowledge Marianne Alda because she said for so many of us, we have been able to stand on her shoulders. And it mm. was a, a room of young uh, black female uh, industry professionals. And there was uh, a a young black producer, Gino Brooks, who said in one of the rooms, he said, you are one of our queens and you should be working. I'm gonna be looking out for you. Well, six months later, 
he DMs me. He's he's got um oh now the dogs are outside <laughs> and they're outside my window. <laughs> okay, we're just gonna have right. to work with the dogs. Um with the dogs barking. Um let the dogs out and they're still barking. Um but anyway, um I uh he DM'd me and he said he was working on a project. He had gotten a bunch of money, I think from Viacom, I'm not sure. But he had eight short films and he was going to mentor eight young writer producers in doing these film shorts. And it was going to be, they were going to air on AMC's um, all black uh, streaming network. So he said, I'll send you the script, take a look at it. Let me know what you think. I looked at the script. I liked the script. I liked the character. The short film was called Gumbo. My character is a renowned chef, food truck owner, chef who has this recipe for gumbo that this young um, food writer wants to come and steal from me. And I said, it's a great script, but you know, you're the producer. I need to talk to the writer director because she's the one who has to pick me. You just can't, you know, I'm going to, this is who you got to work with. No, she has to pick me. She has to, I have to know that, that, that we have a rapport. I said, also, I've got a few questions about the script. So he set up a zoom for later that day. And in the meantime, I went online and I, I uh, did my research about her. As it turns out, she, they are a young black binary. They um, are young black binary queer. And she says that as a binary a queer black woman, um, she's very concerned or they're very concerned about the positive representation. Of, of of diversity. And so when we had our Zoom meeting, I said, I read what you said about what your concerns are. I said, here are my concerns. I'm an old black woman and I have concerns about positive representation. I said, and in the script, the first time we meet her, she's in a muumuu. And then she's talking about, she's 60 and she's talking about, well, you know what happens when you get old. I said, first of all, 60 is not old. Could I be 73? She said, yes, ma'am. I said, you cut that line about, oh, you know what it's like to get old? She said, yes, ma'am. I said, and instead of a muumuu, could you be wearing a tank top yoga pants and a kimono? She said, yes, ma'am. I said, then we got a deal. When we started working together, we had several conversations and she, they, I'm sorry, admitted to me that even within marginalized groups, there is still a certain amount of discrimination, age discrimination and an unrecognition of that um, within the marginalized groups, which the irony of that is, I don't care what, a, what your race is, your gender, your uh, sexual orientation, your race, your ethnicity, the common denominator for all those groups is that 
everybody's gonna get old. So all of these groups should have a vested interest in a positive portrayal about the older population. I think one of the reasons why we're so slow on this is because people didn't get to live to be as old as we're getting to be now. <clears throat> there's a there's a different kind of conceptualization of age because the people who are getting older now, we're not aging like our, our parents did. And the younger generation that's coming up, what they see in film and television that's representing the writers who are writing, well, they're going to write, they want to sell their stuff. So they're going to write what they see on TV and film. <clears throat> oh, excuse me. Even though it might, it might vary from what they see in their own households. Um, <clears throat> so I, I do see a change. It's starting to happen. Well, I, I, you know, one of the things that I think you've been you've been commenting on in our conversations, I have a little advantage here. Um, the numbers of especially for women, uh, women have started to get in a little bit more power position over time, which was not necessarily where they were when you were in your 50s. Um, so you've got sort of this larger population of women expanding broader years who are sort of beating the drums that you have been beating for 20 years. And they are in more power positions and they're starting to realize, well, if you're not gonna develop stories for me, I guess I'll do them myself. Yeah, so that is a, a positive development, a positive development. Um, but I think I think the thing that is missed sometime in what you just said for a lot of people, when you're talking to younger creatives or younger in any field, it doesn't matter when you don't if we don't start to change things now, they're just setting themselves up for repeating what we're dealing with when they're our age. So in many ways, we're saying anything that you do to expand the storytelling and create opportunities for more positive representation of what aging looks like is going to make it better for you someday when you get here. Um, and that is an unfortunate that it, we just didn't have, especially for women, the numbers. Men, men's careers in men, there are many more examples of men's careers going well into their 60s, 70s, um, and now in their 80s. But women, they're they're a lot fewer. And and they were still in romantically in roads as they got older, which was pretty rare occasion for females. Um yeah, because so, the men, the men's romantic leads. It's like a man will be Tom Cruise's romantic lead at thirty was another was a thirty year old woman. Tom Cruise's romantic leads at fifty are still another thirty year old woman. Well, and and so really, it is still happening. I mean that it's frustrating. And now you know I'm in my fifties and watching it, and we're seeing. Again, small changes, but it's still we fall back on the stereotypes. And 
some of it, it has to do in my mind with the demographic that has been in control of who tells the stories. That's not the stories they wanted to tell with having women aging because it wasn't I, I I don't know. I don't know their motivation. Maybe they didn't think it was may, they would sell. Maybe it was about money. Maybe it wasn't their experience. They were still wanting to perceive all of older men with 30 year olds uh, relationships. I don't know. But when we start to expand that, first of all, I, I think you just said the business case. Let's just talk the business case. You're leaving money on the table. A ton of it. There is an entire population that would be watching this stuff. So let's go from the business aspect. But if we're going to, there, there is another side to this that is often overlooked. And I know you know about it because you talked about it in your TEDx talk. When you have positive representation or a positive sense of aging, you live longer. Uh -huh. You live longer. There is actual studies that say people who see aging as a positive experience live on an average seven year, seven and a half years longer. So right. we, you know, we need to, there is so much connection in why storytelling matters. And I'm encouraged to see some of what we're starting to see because of the streaming platforms and there's more content um, needed. So they're expanding the storytelling a bit and there's examples of that. But I, I, I think you might have seen the the there was a I, I happened to catch a little bit of a a clip of Emma Thompson, who just did a film that is now making the the um, the rounds in the in the in the um, you know it's Sundance or you know what, what you, the festival circuit, and she plays a woman. It, she's in her sixties. What little I know about the character, who is um, she has she has a nude scene in it. And she talks about how hard, now this is Emma Thompson, career of careers, how difficult it was for her to get into that place of comfortable body image for her role, because as she said, the message is we've been taught to hate our bodies. Just the fact that they're actually going to make this film excites me. I don't even know the whole storyline, but. It's there is a connection here to what stories that are told and the influence on culture and how we see ourselves. And the science is now showing that the more positive sense that we have, the healthier we age, the longer we live. I mean, there was just one I just saw as I was doing some research about what you talked about in your TEDx talk, where they're finding that positive age beliefs can actually reduce the risk of one of the most established genetic factors with dementia. This is new in the last couple of years. And so one, so the quote I was reading was, this makes a case for implementing a public health campaign against ageism. 
which is a source of negative age beliefs, right? And so in your TEDx ageism, it was, and your, your AARP, you have navigated as a woman, you've dealt with sexism, you've been a black person, so you've dealt with racism, and ageism has been a really big ism you've been dealing with. And, yeah, I and think the media is a, could change it. They have the power to change it. Well, ageism is the last um, allowable discrimination. You can't make you can't make ethnic jokes, dumb blonde jokes. You can't make uh, jokes about uh, age, race, gender. But you can you can make old people jokes. You can oh, make yeah. and and that's and 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 I. Uh, when I get those scripts, I turn them down. Um, because once I, again, you have a responsibility. I have a responsibility. And because there is an intersectionality. I'm an older person. I'm also a woman of color. I think one of the reasons why my agent suggested that I gain 50 pounds is that the older character, you know, that especially for a, a Black woman, there's a double whammy. It's like there's a certain body type. There's a certain expectation that if you're going to be that if you're going to be an older black woman, of course you're going to be overweight. Of course, this is this is you know you can't possibly be size eight. That that that's an anomaly. That's not true. And the thing about it is that it does a disservice to the black community because, as a hypnotherapist, the images that we see help to form drop into our subconscious mind, and they our belief systems about reality. So we create our, our personal reality out of the images that we see about the stories we, we tell. So as you just said, the narrative is very important. We have to change the narrative. Change the narrative, it changes the belief system. So we have to start telling different stories. And, need... and the funny thing is, the stories exist. They're not, it's not like they have to, well, what could we possibly think of doing? I, know. I mean, they're not what? fairy tales. All they have to do is represent real. real life. There's so much variety. And, and, and I mean, there, there is, it's never ending. It's never ending what's available out there. It's just, they just didn't do it. And I and I'm glad we're seeing a, a shift. But what's exciting to me about this conversation and what you talk about and the importance of what you're doing and what you represent is we have the ability to do so much with the industry. The the entertainment industry can be a force for incredible change and changing hearts and minds and there are so many examples of where that has happened but this is like as you have you have experienced and we've seen for so long the last hurdle is really this ageism thing and it has huge impacts on society and especially when it comes to women and we don't need to they don't need to go come up with some brand new thing in their imaginations. Just go talk to women. Just go talk to the women in your lives. They're doing amazing things. Their stories become complex. They're navigating far more interesting 
journeys in their life when you get older? I mean, just yours alone as a human. I mean, divorce, parent, you know, aging parents, career shifts, having grandchildren. There's like 50 stories you could create just from that little part of your life's journey. So I'm excited to do this podcast because one of the things I said, my story is rarely seen. I'm a single woman in my 50s. I never got married. I don't have children. And I don't feel like I'm a spinster. I don't feel like I'm an anomaly. I don't feel, you know, all of the tropes of what, oh my God, you never had a, you never got married. You never have children. What's wrong with you? I know many women in my life who that was their journey. And they're living wonderfully fulfilled, joyful lives. You know, they're, they they may still be, I, I still would date. And it just wasn't how it played out for me. But I don't feel less valuable. I don't feel like somehow I did something wrong. But I don't see a lot of stories that look like me in film and television. That's just well, and if one. You do, and if you do... They're sad stories. Oh, yeah. Bitter, regretful. Yeah. (laughs) Right. And again, so could we just expand the narrative just a little bit? When I say there's more to our story, there's a lot more to our story, both in the journeys that women take in our lives. It isn't just about all waiting to meet our prince and live happily ever after. That isn't everybody's choice or story. I know um, many couples who didn't choose to have children. You don't see that often. You're that's not a common thing. It, they don't. They made choices for a variety of different reasons. It's not a common storytelling line that we see. Um, and when you get older, you know, oh God forbid, you don't go do everything you can to not age you know, for women. And the conversation should be just age healthy. You know, can we just be healthy as we age as opposed to have to pretend it didn't happen? Like, oh my God, do I gray? Do I not gray? Do I, I mean, you and I could go on this topic for another four hours, but (laughs) the reality (laughs) is there is an opportunity here. For, Holly, for for Hollywood and creatives and storytellers out there. And there's and there is a pool of talent to grant to 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 create for. And you're just one example of somebody who has the talent and you alone could offer ideas for story because of the work, the 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 life you've navigated just as a human being well i think the interest is starting to change i think again as you mentioned before i think the bottom line is money uh and i think madison avenue has recognized it for a while now in their appeal to in the commercial appeal uh, the products that they and goods and services that they that they want to sell to an old, older population. Um, the problem is that they don't have enough creative content on which to advertise those commercials uh, mm-hmm. because there's not enough uh, older people that are watching because there's no appeal. So I 
I do believe that there is, I'm starting to notice a shift, certainly an interest uh, within the entertainment community that I have come in contact with um, on, on Clubhouse. Uh, I think the audience, you know, I'm 73, so I'm a frontline baby boomer. They, there's, the population is beginning to reach a tipping point where mm -hmm. there's enough concentration of older people that that we we will make our needs known and we will be better served by the entertainment industry. So I do believe we're right in the middle of a cultural shift. It hasn't shifted yet, but uh, that's why it's up to the rest of us to, you know, keep well, and, and, and it's <laughs> And the more we do it, the more normal it will be. It won't, yeah. it, it, you know, I was reading some of the, the feedback of, of the, the new end just like that. And you, whether you like the storyline or not, you, I don't care. But some of the, some of the comments about, you know, if somebody, their weight or, you know, their face or do they look okay? Again, it becomes about, do they look okay? Are they, you know, are they still, you know, for lack of a better term, fuckable, you know, and it's for some people, it feels jarring to see older women uh, and they get a lot of crap thrown at them because they're not still 30. Um, but that's because we don't see enough of it. We don't see regular people just living their lives. So it seems like oh, oh, shocking, which is why the casting for the man always has to have the love interest 20 years younger because, well, people won't accept it. Of course, they'll accept it. That's life. But it only feels odd because it's not done. And the more you do it, the more. Everybody will just accept that when we age, if you can, you age healthy, which is, should be the goal. And it's natural and normal and should be embraced because guess what? As you know, my backstory, not everybody is privileged to get it. I mean, you talked about our dear friend, Karen. Not everybody is blessed with the ability to get into their 70s and 80s. I have two siblings that didn't get into my set, their 70s. So I think we should be celebrating it and embracing it and encouraging better storytelling because it will also create a healthier population because as we see, if it, they have a better positive belief system about aging, they'll be healthier. So that's my little, my little uh, soapbox, I guess, for the moment. It's just, I'm excited for where you are and what you do. I cannot, for anybody listening to this, Marianne, aside from being a great mentor when I was in my acting days and, and guide and, and creative uh, support system. She is what I call one of my wise women friends, one of my dearest, dearest uh, friends, counselor, support system. And I'm going to get a little verklempt on this one, Marianne. She, <laughs> she walks her walk. And she is a 
dear, dear friend, immensely talented. I've seen her do stand-up. I've seen her drama. I've seen her comedy. And I can't wait to see what you'll be doing from your creative life. But I am so grateful and blessed to have you as a friend. And well, thank you for being my very first guest. Well, she like, kicked my ass to make me do this recording <laughs> so I would get this damn thing launched. I think I said, okay, let's put it on the books. Let's put it on the calendar. Let's do it now. And we're doing it. So, and we're doing it. Um, uh, thank you, my friend. Absolutely. You have always been a big supporter of mine as well. And I think, you know, we're, we're all in this, we're all in this together. Um, you know what I, you do what you do and I do what I do for the, for the love of it. Mm -hmm. You know, is it Simon Sinek, the Simon Sinek, why, why we yeah. do this? We do this because the, if we're gonna, if we're gonna, first of all, that life is, is a miracle. If we're given this gift of being able to participate in this, this thing called life, then the payment for the ticket to ride is to leave it a little bit better than it was when you found it. So I think we're both doing that. So I yay. agree. Yay us. Yay us. Okay. Well, I'm going to, I guess we'll just say that's it for this one. We have two wonderful episodes and i hope i can have you back because there's so many things that we're watching and you have such insight to some of the current events so um my hope is you will be a a future guest and maybe you'll even be able to come on as we interview another another great woman because you you always have such insight and hear things differently and i think that would be a kind of a cool thing if sometime in the future we could have you back for that too absolutely anytime anytime my friend <laughs> all right i love you my friend thank you for being here okay love you too bye everybody Ooh, i am so grateful for the opportunity to have had that conversation with my friend mary Alda. she continues to be an inspiration to me in my life and to so many others and I aspire to become as wise and as thoughtful and articulate a speaker as she is someday. There's More to Our Story podcast was created by me, Elisa Gallagher, your host. It's produced by Brian Richards. The theme music is by Andy Littlewood. And I'll be back next week with a new episode, so please follow the podcast wherever you choose to listen. Have a great week, everyone.